Morning. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. I've entitled this sermon, Much More. Much more. I did that because that phrase is in here uh, a few times. Much more. I have many people that come to me uh, seeking assurance of their salvation. Uh, Most of us uh, have times when we need to know that we're saved. Oftentimes people struggle uh, with the fact that God indeed saves us, and he saves us to the uttermost. But there's something that is very true, is that when we come to know Jesus Christ, our sin does not cease. Any non-sinners in here, anyone who has, didn't sin this past week in some way, or yesterday, Okay, how about this morning? Whether it be in action, word, thought, attitude. And you know what that sin does? Even in the life of a believer, it condemns you. And Satan takes that and he'll use it and you'll use it against yourself. Man, am I even a believer? I thought that, I did that, I said that. The intent of this text that we're looking at today is to cause us to walk out of this place assured of our salvation that is by the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this text does. Since we're justified, it's saying, there's much more. There's much more. And so I want us to look at three particular aspects, three particular points today. First of all, we were all enemies of God. The text points out that we were all enemies of God. Secondly, Listen to this joyful point. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. (laughs) Y'all should smile at that. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. Since we've been justified, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. And lastly, we presently and forevermore will rejoice in God. We will rejoice in God. But we do rejoice in God. All those points come right out of the text. Beginning in verse 9, we see that it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies... We were all enemies. The Word of God describes all mankind as enemies of God. Uh, We prove out 
us being enemies against God in the things that we do. Verse 6 tells us that we were still weak. Uh, We had no uh, capacity to help ourselves. Verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we were sinners, enemies of God. Uh, This text tells us that we were enemies of God, and he saved us. In Colossians 1.21, which I read uh, earlier just a few moments ago, Colossians 1.21, it says, And you were once alienated, that is separated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Those are all things against God. That's the activity of an enemy. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 1, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, by the way, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's obvious that we are enemies of God by our actions, by our attitudes, by what we say. But I want you to know in this text in Romans, what Paul is communicating is uh, God being our enemy. God is the enemy of mankind. You say, well, no, 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 wait, Rick. God is love. Yes, he is. Hallelujah, God is love. Isn't that wonderful? It's good that he's love. He's a loving God. Yes, he is. But I want you to know that he is the enemy of those, of mankind, of those who are against him. We speak of God as love, and indeed he is, but look at verse 6 and verse 8. While we were still weak, and here, but God shows his love for us. He is loving. He is that. He loves us. But now look at the end of verse 9. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's wrath. Folks, don't separate the love of God. From the wrath of God. Do not separate the love of God from the wrath of God. It is not possible to grasp the overwhelming, steadfast, eternally enduring love of God if we remove the fact that God is a God of wrath. He is going to pour out wrath one day. He's a God of wrath. We were children of wrath. Sons of disobedience. And what does it say here? It says that we, that God has wrath toward mankind. Look with me back at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Back where we started. I don't know when, 
sometime last year, I think. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God has been revealed. You say, but the love of God has been revealed. Yes, it has. But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. But what do we do? Paul, beginning his argument, contends that what we do is suppress the truth of God's love and suppress the truth of God's wrath. We exchange the glory of things that mean nothing. For the God who created everything. He's a God of wrath. You say, well, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable talking about this like this. It sounds like God might hate people. He hates those who sin. The Psalms tell us that. He hates those who do evil. The psalmist writes that very clearly. He is indeed a God of wrath. But I want us to understand that the highest, most glorious evidence and demonstration of God's love is that he saves you from his wrath. Y'all didn't get that, did you? It says right in verse 9 that we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Folks, that's love. You deserve wrath, but he says, I'll save you from my wrath. Paul's contention up to this point is that you can't save yourself from the wrath of God. There's no works that you can do. There's no law that you can follow. Uh, there's no activity that you can engage in. There's no words that you can say. There's absolutely nothing that you can do on your own that will convince God, oh, okay, I shouldn't be putting my wrath on you. No, it tells us right here that the only means of that is Jesus Christ. Since we have now been justified by his blood, by his blood, he's the only way. There's no other way. Justification comes no other way. Your righteousness is no good. Only the righteousness of Christ applied to you pleases God. And that's done. By God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. God saves you from his wrath. We were all enemies of God. Not merely that we saw God as an enemy, but God saw us 
as an enemy. That's what Paul's saying here. And then it says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Understand the future tense going on there. It's speaking of a day in the future. Uh, Sometimes people don't grasp the fact that salvation is not merely a point in time in which you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. Paul's been talking about justification. Well, that's salvation. So he has justified us. Isn't that great? (laughs) He has declared us righteous, and there ain't nothing righteous about us, right? Okay, Uh, Nothing righteous about it, and he's declared us righteous on the basis of the cross and us believing in Jesus Christ and him alone. So he has justified us. And y'all know what he does? Those who are justified, one thing that he does is he begins working on them in what's called sanctification. To sanctify is to set one apart. Now, there's a sense in which we're set apart by God when we're saved, but then what we realize is that our position in Christ, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, is one thing, and our practice doesn't match our position. And so sanctification is the process of the practice moving toward the position that he's put us in. And that is is that we are fellow heirs with him. And that process is called sanctification. He is sanctifying us. And then ultimately, there is glorification. Okay? And so justification, sanctification, glorification, that's when we are gathered together as the people of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and we will be with Him forever, and we will rejoice with Him. All of this that I've just explained, justification, sanctification, and glorification, is the umbrella called salvation. Salvation is all three of those things. And if all you have to go on is, well, Lord, I prayed a prayer, but you have not been declared righteous? How do I know? That's what Paul's explaining. How do I know? What he's saying is, if you've been justified, you will be saved from the wrath of God when you're glorified. Now, some people think this, you know, well, you know what? That rapture thing. That's another thing we'll talk about later, okay? I don't happen to believe that there's going to be a rapture in which the believers are going to be taken out. Y'all know that about me. I don't necessarily believe that. Okay? But but some people are kind of like, well, I'm not going to be there for the wrath of God. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. You're going to be there at the end of all things when the judgment takes place. And the judgment... For you is no condemnation. You know why? Jesus Christ, our Lord, he took on our condemnation. He took on our sin. He took on the punishment that we deserved. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He saves us from the wrath of God. 
So much more, since we have been justified by his blood, much more having been justified has a present and future implication. We will be saved from his wrath. Anybody in here justified? There's a couple of people over here that mumbled a little bit, and that's okay. You know in your heart whether you are. And if you are, if you have been justified by God, you will be saved from the wrath of God. That's a promise. That's an assurance. That's a certainty. When we wrestle, am I saved? Am I not saved? He's saying right here, if you've been justified, guess what? You will be saved from his wrath. No question. The great and glorious day of the Lord is coming when judgment will take place. For the unrepentant, God's wrath for all eternity. For the redeemed, we are saved from God's wrath. In the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the day of the Lord. In Amos, in Amos chapter 5, verse 18, starts laying out some things about that day of the Lord. And he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? What Amos is saying is, look, you people... Y'all aren't following the Lord at all, and you have this expectation that the day of the Lord is going to be a day of light for you. I want you to know, if you have not trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, the day of the Lord is not going to be pretty. There's going to be wrath. But for those who are in Christ, deliverance, saved from the wrath of God. Notice something here in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen to that. Saved by him from the wrath of God. Only God can save someone from God's wrath. No one else can save us from God's wrath. Only God can save us from his wrath. Only he can set us free. We did not cease being enemies because we loved God. We didn't stop uh, rebelling against him uh, because we loved God. No, God loved us. God did the work. We ceased being enemies because God reconciled us. Not because we made ourselves reconciled to God, but because God reconciled us to himself. Verse 11 says, Through whom, Jesus Christ, we have now received reconciliation. It was given to us by someone. Someone else did the reconciling. He justifies us. I want you to see we've been saved by the wrath of God. No one has saved themselves by finding God and coming to God on their own. If you came to God, you came to God because he drew you to himself. 
Man, our assurance rests in what God has done. All through this text right here, we see that proved out. And we see the assurance of our salvation in what God has done. Not in what we have done, not in what we do after we are justified, but in merely what God has done. Uh, let me give you all a brief, boring lesson in Greek verbs. I, I saw the excitement in your faces when I said that. Uh, there's what's called a voice in the Greek language. And the voice is speaking of who is doing the action of a verb. Is the subject doing it or is the subject being acted upon? And so we have what's known as the passive voice. The passive voice means that the subject is being acted on. And the active voice means that the subject is doing the action. Let me give you an example. For the active voice, I hit the ball. Well, I'm being the subject. Um, is, I'm, I'm hitting the ball, so that's active. So the subject is doing the action. Uh, but if I say, I was hit by the ball, well, I'm not doing the action. The ball did the action. Actually, it was somebody else that decided they wanted to hit me with a ball, but we're not going to go that far. So the ball was doing the action, not the subject. So let me show you five places where that passive verb is used, speaking of our justification. And if I get excited, y'all just excuse me, okay? Because it just builds, and it keeps building, and it's beautiful. Beginning in verse 9, look what it says. Since therefore we have now been justified. Uh, that is the aorist passive, so past passive. Uh, we have been justified. I didn't act to justify myself. God acted to justify me. Isn't that great? God acted. Look at the next one. Uh, in, still in verse 9. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Shall we be saved? Passive. Future passive. So in the future, something's going to happen. God's going to save us. Our salvation is continuing to happen. And it's going to culminate in the end. So future passive, we shall be saved. Shall we be saved by him? By his blood. Verse 10, it says there, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, we were reconciled to God. That's a worst passive indicative. The indicative, by the way, is a matter of fact. We were reconciled to God. Me. You. And I didn't do the reconciling. God did the reconciling. That's what it's saying. So when people uh, would, would, would attempt to to explain that we were reconciled because we came to God. No, we were reconciled because God came to us. Because God did the working. 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Keep going. Now that we are reconciled, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now that we are reconciled, aorist passive again. I didn't do the reconciling. It says there, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Much more by his resurrection, by what he has done. That shall we be saved by his life is the fifth one, future passive. We're going to be saved by the life of Jesus. He's risen. He's present with the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father. We shall be saved, absolutely, by the activity of God, what He does, not what we do. We should gain great assurance of our salvation from the fact that God saved us from His wrath. He did it, not us. (laughs) Isn't that great news? God redeemed you. God rescued you. God, 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 not you and not your works. Well, you never answer the question, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, you know, I was a pretty good guy. You know, I was a good old boy. East Texas. I grew up in East Texas. It's a Bible Belt. Have you ever noticed that everywhere in the United States, wherever you are, seems to be the Bible Belt? It's kind of like, man, that belt is loose, man. It just kind of spins around all over the place. Y'all got one of those belts that does that? People are counting on some type of cultural Christianity to save them. And I want you to know, no cultural Christianity will save you. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and the absolute fact that he is raised from the dead. And you calling on him, trusting in him. And you're not going to do that because of you. You're going to do that because of him. Because he convinces you from his word. That you're trusting in me is the only way. You can have eternal life. Brother Rick, how do I know that I'm saved? You know that you're saved because God worked and God saved you through the blood of his son. Because God said in his word that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And God made a promise there that if you would trust in his son, he will save you. And let me tell you something about promises. I had a lot of them, and I've made a lot of them. And I've had a lot of them broken toward me, and I've broken a lot of them. Promises are only good as the character of the person who gives them. And I want you to know the character of God is is impeccable. All the way through the scriptures, what does it say? He is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful.
Our assurance is not based on our works. Our salvation is not based on our works. You can't be saved by what you do. And you can't be assured by what you do. Works are not assurance. They are results of becoming a new creation in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the result of being made a new creation by the living God. I know, and I've had to say this before. I'm like, you know, Rick, what we do is important. Yes, it is. There are works that we're to do that God planned before the foundation of the world for us to accomplish and do. But I want you to know the works that we do are not sufficient evidence that we are children of God. They're vital in terms of demonstrating the result of what God has done. Paul's preaching this, this text right here, and what he's about to say drives him in chapter 6 to bring back the opponent that he was arguing with in chapters 2, 3, 4. And for that opponent to say, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. No, absolutely not. He says that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, let me keep this active passive things going. We who died to sin active, how can we still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, passive, we didn't do that. Uh, were baptized into his death, passive, we didn't do that. We were buried, uh, Passive, therefore, with him by baptism. He buried us by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might actively walk in newness of life. That active walking is the result of the living God working and doing the act of salvation. He assures us, not by what we do, but by what he has done. That's what Paul's getting at. Our assurance is based on what God has done, not what I do. Works are unreliable in granting assurance. We are prone to wander. Our obedience fluctuates as we walk. Does it not? Uh, Y'all kind of got some smirks earlier when I started asking, well, have you sinned today? Did you sin yesterday? I mean, I saw smirks all over the place. The thing is, we no longer love sin. As a matter of fact, we despise sin. That's the result of God doing a work. We see in Scripture where he says that we are to put sin to death and the spirit in us and our soul of a redeemed person says, yes, I need to do that. 
And we work, and we work, and we work to kill sin by the power of God. And ten years later, it's buried. And sometimes it's ten days later, and sometimes it's ten minutes later. But our works are unreliable to give us assurance. They don't give us assurance. In fact, they condemn us. Our sin continually condemns us, causing us to ask the question. I mean, that's what causes us to ask the question. We sin, and sometimes we sin little. If you can put sin on a scale, sometimes we sin big. And we ask the question, man, am I even saved? Do I even know the Lord? That I would think this, that I would say this, that I would do this? Our sin is constantly condemning us and causing us to question whether we're genuinely saved or not. But this text points to not what we have done, but to what God has done. And if you're ever looking for assurance, look to what God has done. I mean, if you're ever doubting, man, do I, am, I, am I a Christian? Look to the cross and see that blood spilled. Look to the cross. Look to the grave, the tomb that is empty. Look to what God has done. And what does he call us to? He calls us to walk in obedience. Look at verse 11. More than that. Don't y'all like that? More than that. What's he talking about more than that? He justifies us, but more than that. We're going to be saved from his wrath, but more than that. He causes us to rejoice. It's like over in chapter 8. Looking forward to getting to chapter 8. I preached through chapter 8 not long ago, a couple of years ago, three years ago, something like that. But what does it say? If, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gives us all things. He gives us assurance. He gives us life. He gives us a will to kill sin. My assurance is not in what I own. My assurance is not in what I do. My assurance is in the one who has saved me and who has redeemed me. But then it says in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice. Two more words that we can put with that or replace that word rejoice with. Exult, okay? Uh, we, we, don't, we don't rejoice. You know, use that word this week. Say, man, I was at church the other day. And man, you know, after the service, I just exulted. You know, okay, that's rejoice. I rejoiced, okay, or boast, all right? Now, the interesting thing is, is that this word boast is the same word that Paul has used throughout up to this point, telling the Jews there's no place to boast. 
You can't boast in that you've done anything to receive God's salvation. Don't be boasting. I'm going to tell you, I mean, that, that's what we do, by the way. If we put works as a means of assurance, two things are going to happen. One of two. Number one, you are going to be considered probably one of the most arrogant people ever because of how good you are or how good you think you are. Or second, you're going to be in abject despair, constantly depressed, constantly despairing. That's the two results of trusting in works as a means of our assurance. It's not a means of our salvation, and it can't be the means of assuring that we have salvation. That doesn't follow. But one thing that does happen, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the Father through the Son. We rejoice in the Father. Let me tell you something. This book did not start off with people rejoicing in the Father. It started off with people suppressing the truth of the Father. It started off with exchanging the Father for a lie. And here what we have is people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and faith alone in Him to be justified. What we have here is we have people rejoicing. We rejoice in the Father. Don't you rejoice in the Father? Aren't you thankful? I mean, the God who created everything called you out, called you and said, you're a wretched sinner but look at my son. Look at the cross. Call on him and I will save you. And we did. Isn't that wonderful? We rejoice in God. You say, is that passive too? No. It's middle. You said, you didn't say nothing about no middle voice, Rick. I know. I was saving it. You know what the middle voice tells me? That the subject is both acting and being acted upon. We rejoice because we've been acted upon by the living God. And it comes out in us taking action and rejoicing and exulting and boasting. Paul, you said don't boast. I'm not boasting in me. And I'm not telling you to boast in you. I'm not boasting in my works. I'm not boasting in my position. I'm not boasting in anything. I'm boasting in God through Jesus Christ. That kind of boasting's fine. Do that all the time. Rejoice in Him all the time. Always doing this. Our assurance is in God. Your assurance is not in what you do. Don't go out of here and say, Brother Rick said I'd do whatever I want to. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Don't throw slippery slope fallacy at me either because that's not what it is either. It's the genuine true gospel 
that we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And we are kept by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we are assured by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There ain't no working going on in that, in our assurance. But in that he saved us, he has changed us. And our perspective of what sin is, is despicable to us. We don't want it. And what we want now is we want to pursue the righteousness that is Christ. There's much more to knowing Christ than walking an aisle. Much more to knowing Christ than saying a prayer. Much more to being a child of God than just saying you are or thinking you are. It's where is your faith? It is in Christ. And if it's not in Christ, you are without hope. All of our assurance is in Jesus Christ and God the Father who has loved us with an everlasting love and saved us for all eternity. Don't boast in your works. Boast in God. Rejoice in Him. Know that you are His child. But if you don't know that, call on Him. Believe His Word. Believe that only Christ is the one who saves. Trust Him. Trust the work on the cross, that He bore your sin, that He bore the wrath you deserved, that He was buried, that He rose again, overcoming the wages of sin, which is death. And proving that the work that he did on the cross was eternal and effective in saving you. Hope in him. He will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you, God, that you give us hope in him and him alone. We thank you, God, for justification by faith. We thank you, Lord, that we're not going to have to recite it when we get to heaven. We thank you that faith and believing you, not believing the world, not believing Satan, not believing our own sin, that we're condemned, but instead believing you, that you have saved us and redeemed us and are changing us. And you indeed do change those you justify. So Lord, we want to thank you for this promise that you make us new and you make everything about us new. And Lord, let that be evident in our life. Let the results, the fruitfulness of our life speak clearly to your glory. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.